0: All right, well, we're, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter two, and the, the passage we read this morning, you may have noticed, it's a real, man, it's a real downer of a passage. And, you know, we said thanks be to God after we read it this morning. And, you know, do you really want to thank God for passages like this where he says, I hated life. You know, welcome to church today. <laughs> you know, this kind of a downer of a passage. And, and, and you remember that at the very beginning of the series, we said that the author of Ecclesiastes, is sort of like that, that old Saturday Night Live sketch called Debbie Downer. And you remember Debbie Downer, they'd be at a party, and, and somebody would say some happy news, some great thing that happened to them. And of course, Debbie would step in with her pessimistic, glass-half-empty perspective. And then there was the, the sound that after she said her piece, it went, wah wah. Well, this is certainly a passage that says wah womp. Um, it's a passage that kind of looks like the weather outside today, kind of a gloomy, pessimistic sort of passage. And, you know, if you're, if you're somebody that, that maybe you grew up in church, you you're kind of grew up in a, with a traditional religious perspective, you actually might be bothered by passages like this in the Bible. You know, it might bother you to hear the Bible itself say, I hated life. You know, sounds gloomy, sounds uh, morose, pessimistic. Why so negative? Well, shouldn't we all be singing with Isaac Watts and his famous hymn? You know, the one where he says, "At the cross, where I first saw the light, I received by faith uh, my sight, and now I'm happy all the day." Shouldn't we be singing that? Isn't that the Christian perspective? Well, well, even in that song, um, Isaac Watts says those words in a context of a pretty dark song. So. Uh, in, in that song, he says that uh, he has guilt which hangs over his head and he sometimes feels like a worm. Uh, he talks about his groaning, about how the sun hides behind the darkness, about drops of grief, and a burden that weighs on his heart. And even as you look throughout the Bible, there are people in the Bible that have a very pessimistic perspective. And so, uh, you remember Job, who cursed the day of his own Birth, you know, he was, had such a miserable life, hard life. And then there was Elijah, who was so lonely, so alone, that he actually asked the Lord to take his own life. And then there was Jesus in the garden, where it says that he, he was sorrowful even to the point of death. Right, and so passages like this, they're in the Bible, you know, and and I think for some of us, it provides kind of a strange affirmation, you know, if you're someone who maybe sees the dark side of life, you can be very pessimistic, passages like this can provide sort of a strange affirmation, you know, that, you know, maybe you're someone who thinks that if you're going to be honest, uh, much of life is sung in a minor key, and like jazz, a lot of it doesn't always resolve, And so passages like this are important because they tell us that that part of true godliness, part of having a biblical perspective on the world is having an active, open, expressive distaste for the wrongness of things under the sun. One pastor I listened to this week, he called uh, Ecclesiastes, this perspective, he called it holy cynicism. His name is Scott Solis. He says, this, this passage, you could almost call it holy cynicism, which is where I stole the, the title of this sermon. And the point I want to make today is that, uh, you know, sometimes holiness and cynicism go together. Sometimes having a biblical perspective of life involves seeing the dark side of life. I want us to see three things in the passage today, always three things, right? Uh, number one, we're gonna see the legitimacy of cynicism. Second of all, we're gonna see the danger that comes with cynicism, though. And then finally, the redemption of cynicism. Three things today. So first, uh, l- let's, let's look at the passage and notice the, the legitimacy, uh, the, the good reasons why he feels sort of pessimistic. Verse 12. He says, so I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there was more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. And then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise, wiseness of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How, how the wise dies also as the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me and all is vanity and striving after the wind. So he says, I hated life. Very cynical. Why? Why does he hate life so much? Why why this pessimistic perspective? Well, the the answer he gives, the answer the text gives, uh, in, in very robust language, it says, I hated life because life is absurd. I hated life because life, he says, is grievous. I'm cynical because when I look around, I see meaningless and vanity. In other words, he's saying, I hated life, I'm cynical about life, because when I look at life, it seems like it just doesn't work. Now, one of the things he says all the way through the book of Ecclesiastes is, I saw. So he's looking around at life, and he sees uh, things like injustice. You know, he says, I look and I saw, and there I saw the wicked taking advantage of the poor, and he's getting away with it. And, and then he says, and then I saw some, a righteous person, a godly person, you know, someone who didn't deserve it actually suffering and experiencing terrible things in this life. And in this passage in verse 14, he says this, and then I saw the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. He says, why, do, why am I cynical? Why am I pessimistic about this life? It's because when you look at life, it just doesn't seem to work. You can be, it doesn't matter if you're a wise or a fool, both are gonna die. Both are gonna experience the same end. And here's what he's pointing out. You know, on the one hand, the world is a beautiful place, right? We have sunsets, we have good wine, we have uh, the pinto, right? We've got a lot of really good things. And yet on the other hand, if you're really paying attention, if you're really seeing this life for what it is, without spin, without the fog, you've got to admit that there is something deeply wrong with this life. You know what I mean? And so let me give you some examples here. You you know, there can be somebody who lives very, very wisely. You know, they take care of their bodies, they they eat right, they they exercise, and yet they die at the age of 50. Then there's somebody who eats donuts for decades and chain smokes, and they live well into their 90s. You see? Uh, I was reading this week, and uh, there's a guy named Keith Richards, the, the guitar player for Rolling Stones. And uh, the, apparently this guy is well known for uh, living a hard life, chain smoking, eating terribly, living a hard, debaucherous life. And yet he doesn't seem to age. Right? He just ke- keeps a licking, and, or takes a licking, keeps on ticking, and he just doesn't seem to age. And I saw a little meme this week that says we all need to start worrying about the kind of world we're going to leave to Keith Richards. <laughs> because he just seems to go on and on and on. And this is, this is what he's noticing. It doesn't matter if you, if you eat donuts all your life or take care of your body. The same event could happen to either of you. There are, uh, there are uh, parents that love their children and that raise them right, and their children grow up to neglect those parents. And then there are parents that neglect their children and their children grow up to love them. There's somebody who, uh, you know, works hard all of his life and makes lots of money like Job. And then there are people like Job who, lo- who lose, lose everything, even though they're righteous. Right, there, there might be somebody who lives selfishly and, and oppressively and they make it rich by the age they're th- that they're 30. And then there's somebody else who is kind and loving and yet they live in poverty for the entirety of their lives. You see, what he's pointing out here is that this life so often, if we're honest, doesn't work. A lot of times it doesn't pay to do the right thing. And this is what uh, theologians point out is that when you look at the world, it is both beautiful and broken. The world that we live in It's almost like a a watch that's broken. You can see sort of the remnants of what it's supposed to be, but it's not working. It's not doing what it's supposed to. Or a car that's broken down. That's this world. It's, It's a world that's broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And so Cornelius Plantinga puts it this way. The world we live in is not the way it's supposed to be. The whole range of human miseries from restlessness and estrangement through shame and guilt to the agonies of daytime television. All of them tell us that the things in human life are not as they ought to be. And so there's a legitimacy for cynicism. There's a legitimacy to be discontent with this life. You know, if if you're not discontent, if you're not a little pessimistic sometimes, I'm wondering if you're paying attention. Right, are you really seeing this world for what it is? Are you being honest? Or maybe you've just lived a very sheltered life. You see, he's, he's pointing out that if you're really seeing, if you're paying attention, you've got to see there's a brokenness to this life. There's a dark side to this life. The Bible doesn't want us to be naive and Pollyannish about this life. And so when you go through the Bible, I remember there was, I went to a, a, a small church one time in Louisiana, and uh, they had all of their kids in Sunday school reading through the book of Judges. Have you ever read through the book of Judges? It's a dark, dark book, and these kids were reading about prostitution and genocide and, uh, you know, all manner of horrible things, and I remember just thinking, like, "This, this is way different from the Disney movie they saw the night before, but, you see, the Bible is not naive about the brokenness of this world, and sometimes Cinderella just keeps on sweeping the dirt for the wicked stepsisters and the wicked stepmother. You see, sometimes this life is, you know, if you're honest, if you're paying attention, you've gotta sing it in a minor key. And like jazz, it doesn't always resolve. Elizabeth Elliott wrote a book called No Graven Image, and in in the book she tells the story of a missionary who went down to Honduras, and she wanted to translate the Bible into the language of this native tribe. And she enlisted the help of, of a native to help her and, and to help her translate. And they had this great relationship, and they were making good progress. They had translated most of the Bible, and then the, the native got sick. The one who was helping her got sick. And so she was a nurse uh, in her previous uh, days before being a missionary. So she administered a vaccination. He was allergic to it, and he died. The villagers were furious. They thought it was her fault. They took all of her translation, threw it in the river. And then the book ends. And the Christian world hated that book. They hated it. They said, no, no, no. This is, there's no bright side. There's no happy ending here. God would never allow that in, in his, his world. But if you know the story of Elizabeth Elliot, that is almost, almost exactly what happened in her life. You see, negative emotion can be a very appropriate response to the brokenness of this world. And the Bible gives us a release valve to express this sort of cynicism. And so if you are somebody who who sees the the glass half empty, if you do see the the, the darkness of this world and you are grieved over the fact that things just don't seem to work here, that may not be such a bad thing. But it's dangerous. It's the second point. So uh, he, he, he makes the statement here that life doesn't work, and you know, that's because it doesn't, but I think there's a, there's a danger to this cynicism that the author here is expressing in this, in this passage. Because notice he goes on, verse 14, he makes a statement about the wise and the fool, but then this is his conclusion. He says, and then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this is vanity. In other words, his response to the brokenness of the world is to kind of throw up his hands and say, well, what's the point of it all then? If this life doesn't work, if it doesn't pay to be good sometimes, a lot of the times, if there's so much injustice and so much suffering, then what's the point of doing good? Right, this is his cynicism turning toxic on him. And notice it results in in kind of an approach to life that can be very, very dangerous. It it leads him sort of apathetic. Right, and so he says, what's the point of doing anything? Why should I even be wise? Why should I eat right? You've got Keith Richards living his hard life and he keeps on ticking. Why should I eat right? Why should I exercise? Right, you see fools in this world getting ahead. Why should I be wise? He throws up his his hands and he says, what's the point of it all? And if, you, if you've ever gone through a very difficult time or you've seen the darkness of this world, sometimes you wake up in the morning like that, don't you? Now you wake up sort of apathetic and, and saying to yourself, what's the point of it all then? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I working so hard? There's an apathy that I think is the danger of, of his perspective here. Uh, in Psalm 73, there's this famous song where the author, he says, I looked out and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And he said, my foot almost slipped. It's almost like you picture a guy walking up a mountain, a mountain climber, and he's, and he's in between two stones and he loses his balance. And he hasn't fallen yet, but he's not on his feet and he's sort of disoriented. This is where it's leading him. He's disoriented in life. And he's apathetic and he's saying, why should I do anything then? Maybe you've been there. It also leads him to a very jaded perspective. You see, it's, it's almost like he, he's seen all this stuff and, and he, he, he is observing all of it and he's saying, I've just seen too much. I know too much. And he's jaded with this life. You know, a lot of people who work in the helping uh, professions, uh, counselors, pastors, policemen, sometimes you just, you, you see so much of the dark side of life that you can become jaded. And you become distrustful of just about everything. And you see this in churches too, where, where people, you know, that, that, you know if, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you begin to see the darkness even in the church, right? And you can become very cynical and jaded. Right? You're excited at the very beginning and you hear about God's grace and God's love and God's mercy and you know, all this wonderful thing things and then you experience church, people in church. And somebody said to dwell above with the, with the saints we love, that's going to be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, that's another story. And you see the darkness and you see the selfishness and you see the brokenness and you can become very jaded. You know too much to be positive, and you lose your hope. You can also become very skeptical, skeptical of everything. Everything You begin to see through everything in this life. You know, this is a perspective that says, you know what, I see through that. Oh, I know what that's really about. I get that. And you start seeing through just about everything in life. And you start thinking there really is no beauty and truth and love. It's all a sham, and you start seeing through the negativity uh, that you see around you. And this is dangerous. C.S. Lewis has a great quote. It's going to come up on the screen. And he talks about cynicism, and he talks about just sort of having a hyper-skepticism about everything in life. And he says, "You you you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It is good that the window should be transparent because the street or garden beyond it is opaque. How if you saw through the garden too? And if you see through everything, then everything is transparent, but a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is the same as not to see. He's almost blinded by his cynicism. He is so skeptical about everything that he sees nothing. And some some Christians are like, this creeps into the church because, like I said, you can get jaded and frustrated with the church. And you begin to see through everything. And and pretty soon you see through through everything to such an extent that you don't see anything. The staff uh, the other day was talking about Christian podcasts. And Christian podcasts, there's a lot of them that are very cynical. And um, I tend to be a cynical person, I'm very sarcastic by nature. And I tend to love these podcasts because they make fun of just the cheesiness in the church. But we started noticing that sometimes these podcasts become so cynical and so skeptical that they almost completely discount everything. You know, you could be so cynical about the horribleness of Christian music and the cheesiness of Christian movies, and just the hypocrisy that you see in the church, that you are nothing but one big skeptic. You see through everything. And if you see through everything, you don't see anything. And ultimately, this perspective leads you to where Solomon is. He's, teet- is he's teetering on the edge of, of meaninglessness in life. And he's become hard and callous, And this is ultimately where uh, if you go down this path and you you go to the bitter end, you become very, very hard. You know, a lot of people, they they experience uh, injustice and pain. They they see the darkness of life, and it actually leads them to become extremely um, callous to life. I knew two elderly elderly women. Uh, They were both in my family, and they both experienced incredible hardship in life. One of them, in her old age, became very soft. All the pain and all the sorrow, somehow it made her softer. And she was so uh, tender and so compassionate, and she, I would see her crying during worship. It made her soft. But then there was another woman, and she experienced hardness and difficulty and pain in life, and she became very jaded and very hard. The hardness of life hardened her. And so she detached from the world. Why, you know, why do anything? Cynicism says nothing really changes. Don't get your hopes up. Do what it takes to make a living and don't let yourself care too much. Get out of it whatever you can. She didn't let herself care so much. And maybe this is where you're headed this morning. And the question is how do you experience the pain of this life and, and not be, you know, Pollyannish and idealistic, but you actually see reality. You, you actually open your eyes and you're seeing the world as it is. How do you do that but also remain soft and open? Right, how do you um, see all the injustice and yet still don't uh, become hardened by it? Well, I think uh, the Bible wants us to go to a perspective that I think redeems our cynicism. This is the third point. And you don't really see this in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes sort of leaves us hanging. You know, as Solomon in this book, he sees all the evil, he's very jaded by it, and then the book ends. There's no resolve here. He's, it leaves you, you know, he's teetering on the edge here of, 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 of cynicism and hardness. And you've got to go further on in the Bible to get an answer to what, to, to what we do about this, this condition. You know, the, the book of Ecclesiastes, it raises questions that, that only Jesus Christ answers. And so when you go to the New Testament, you see in Jesus Christ a really good picture of a positive way to deal with the, the darkness of the world. Because Jesus Christ comes into this life and, 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 and he experienced full throttle the absurdity and vanity of the world, didn't he? I mean, Jesus Christ saw it all. And he didn't shy away from it. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. He was able to see the world in all of its ugliness. This is why Jesus cried all the time. You know, Jesus was weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, his really good friend who who died early in life. It caused him to weep and be broken. You see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem where he looks at this this city that used to be so grand but now is filled with oppression and injustice and he wept over it, he wept over it. And we see him in the Garden of Eden, or Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, sorrowful to the point of death, weeping tears about the darkness in his own life. And yet he comes into the world to, to redeem the darkness. Jesus Christ came into this world, experienced all the absurdity in order that he might heal the absurdity. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ dies and he sheds his blood, was buried in a tomb. On the third day, he rises again from the dead so that through his resurrection, he might redeem this broken, absurd world so that one day in the future, he might return and make all things right. so that in the future we might look towards the day when, when wisdom does pay off, when righteousness reigns, and when things work again. This is the future that we have look, to look forward to. Um, in the Gospels, Jesus does miracles. And it, the miracles that he does, these are not just fancy things, kind of supernatural fancy things. They are, every single miracle alleviates some sort of suffering. You ever notice that? You know, if I was Jesus and I just wanted to do something fancy, I would fly in the air and do a couple of flips and come back down again and say, whoa, check that out. But that's not what what the miracles are about. Every single miracle uh, uh, leaves some sort of absurdity in the world. He feeds the hungry. This world, there was never, people in this world were not meant to go hungry. That's part of the broken world. Jesus, in his miracle, shows us this is the way the world is supposed to be. The world that I created is a world where people don't go hungry. Uh, he raises the dead. God created a world where death it was never supposed to be. Death is unnatural and absurd. Jesus, in that miracle, heals that. Uh, another miracle, Jesus, uh, he heals a leper and brings them back into a society where they're no longer ostracized. Every single miracle is a picture of the world as it was intended to be, and will be. So Jesus heals the brokenness of this world, and this is what we look forward to. And so as a Christian, you know, you can be hopeful <laughs> that one day good is gonna come. Here, here's a great little quote. I found this in Christianity today. It says, we live in between the reality of the original Eden and the restored Eden. Eden. Some Christians deny the reality of ex-Eden existence, offering trite and formulaic slogans and cliches that idealize our experience of faith and rightly ring foul and cynical ears. The attitude of cynicism, in contrast, denies the reality that God has promised new creation, that it is just around the corner, and that it is making appearances here and there and now through the work of Christ and his Spirit. We need to foster a biblical spirituality that embraces the grim reality of our ex-Eden life along with the joyful reality that God is making all things new. Uh, The author says, my wife calls this hopeful realism. And I think this is where we need to go, hopeful realism. You are real about the darkness of the world, but you are just as real about the world that is coming. And I think when you do that, you know, when when you face the world with hope like that, it, it can it could make you softer rather rather than harder. The darkness could lead you towards God rather than away from God. And it could lead you to action rather than apathy. Okay, so this is here's the the points today. So the you know, here there there are reasons why we should be cynical. We live in a broken world. But there's a danger to that. It could lead down a place where you do not see meaning in this life anymore. When you look at the cross, when you look at Jesus, it leads you to a place of hopeful realism, where you're real about the darkness of the world, but you also face it with hope that things will eventually be made right. I was thinking this week about people that that kind of exhibit hopeful realism, a good cynicism, and I was thinking, I'm almost done here, by the way, but I was thinking of my friend uh, Daniel Tyler, and Daniel Tyler came here a, a couple months ago, and he was, uh, Daniel is one of those, he preached a sermon, and he's one of those guys that experienced the, the absurdity of this life. Uh, he grew up in a, in a single-parent home, his mom was addicted to drugs, um, you know, living in poverty, soon he found himself in Conway in a correctional facility. No hope at all, nothing. And someone came to him and said, listen, there is a world that is coming. Through the death and erection of Jesus, there is a world that is coming that is filled with hope. You don't have to live this way anymore. And Daniel was saved and he, and he became a Christian. And after he became a Christian, he, he, went, he decided to go back into the same correctional facility, the same absurdity to tell other people about the hope that's coming. And Daniel, I think, exhibit. He wasn't Pollyannish. He didn't ignore the fact that there was, there was, you know, a, a, an absurdity about this world and injustice. He's aware of it, but his awareness is what's leading him back into the prison. I think about people like Martin Luther King Jr., who was so broken and aware of the of the injustice of sl- of of a segregation that it led him to fight against it. Why? Because he saw the world that was coming, a world that Amos says, where where righteousness rolls down like a waterfall. He saw the future world, he was aware of the brokenness of the present world, and he wanted to bring uh, God's world of hope, God's future forward into this world. And so let me end by uh, just maybe ask yourself, your own self, this question as as we close. Where do you see absurdity in your life? Where do you tend to be pessimistic? Where do you tend to see the dark side of things? Where do you see it acutely? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in our culture. Maybe it's in your family. Look at that thing. I want you to just be, allow yourself to be pulled into it. But, But then also, you know, see the future world clearly. And start working, start praying the kingdom of God forward. Seeing the pain of this world could actually uh, be a catalyst uh, to the gospel and to see what Jesus is doing and to join him in what he is doing to bring, to bring redemption to this, to this place. Now let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this passage. And God, as I was studying this past week and just... Um, Kind of being drawn in by by this uh, darkness and the pessimism that we so often see in this world, God, I pray that, that your future world, that, the world that Jesus uh, died to bring in the future, that, that that would become very real to us as well. God, we pray that we might have a a hopeful realism uh, for our marriages, for our children, for our places of business for the suffering that we experience. I pray that you'd help us to navigate those things uh, with, a, with, a, with an openness that feels the pain of it, but also with a hope uh, that, that you are coming, that you are working, and that one day you will make all things right. And we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.